Funding for Smart Talk is provided by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. Serving the community for over 75 years, Capital Blue Cross is behind you for whatever lies ahead. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health, who is studying a new surgical technique that allows surgeons to make repairs to the heart without having to open the chest cavity and while the heart is beating. Info at PinnacleHealth.org. Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. Last May, WITF and Smart Talk produced a series of programs that provided a deeper look into Pennsylvania's juvenile justice system. What we learned is that those under the age of 18 who break the law are dealt with differently than adults in criminal court. Juveniles are given the opportunity to make changes in their lives to help them become law-abiding, protective citizens. The emphasis is not on punishment. There's a program in Lancaster County whose mission is to transform conflict and build community through face-to-face dialogue. It's known as ADVOS Mediation and Restorative Justice Practices. And uh, we're going to be talking a lot about dialogue, conversation, uh, you know, ways to avoid conflict, what to do after conflict with our guest today. Chris Fitz is the Executive Director, Community Engagement of ADVOS Mediation and Restorative Justice Practices. Chris, welcome to the program. Thanks. Good to be here, Scott. Also, Rufus Tolbert is a probation officer with Lancaster County Juvenile Probation. Mr. Tolbert, welcome to the show. Good morning. And Molly Sollenberger has experienced restorative justice firsthand, and we're going to hear Molly's story during the program as well. Ms. Sollenberger, welcome to the show. Good morning. If you have a question or comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. Chris Fitz, you contacted me. Now, we know each other. We've, uh, you know, you've been on the program before, but I just want to kind of give the audience a sense of, uh, you know, how this came about today's program. You contacted me and said that uh, you, you listened to the Juvenile Justice Series that uh, WITF produced and asked, yes. what would you think about talking about restorative justice? Now, we're not just going to be talking about juveniles today, but why did you think that that would be a good tie-in or a good follow-up? Well, I think similar to how juvenile justice is not very well understood in Pennsylvania, um, restorative justice is even less well understood in Pennsylvania. Um, In 1994, 1995, balanced and restorative justice became the law of the land as far as juvenile justice is concerned in this state. Um, and yet when I go and speak at different audiences or uh, to a church or, or something, I, I hear over and over, I never knew that about our juvenile justice system. Um, but when then I talk about our, what, we, what we have offered since basically that time, um, first as we were, our program was called LaVorp, then Center for Community Peacemaking. We've been through a merger, and now we're called ADVOS. Um, uh, and we are offering basically a mediation technique in in the um, in the world of juvenile justice, that is very well, very little understood by by people. Even in the justice system, they may have heard of it, but very have very little exposure. And that's, I think, a, a, for me, um, what an opportunity that somebody like Molly can experience uh, a face to face. Uh, uh, reconciliation potentially with people that have that have caused harm in the community, including to her, and um, and that opportunity really exists in Lancaster and not a lot of other places in the state of Pennsylvania. And so I think just having people understand in Lancaster and beyond that 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 what it is, how it works, why it's so successful, um, helps other people to. Um, to say, yes, oh, I could imagine that. It doesn't sound like an airy-fairy kind of um, wild idea. And we're going to hear Molly's story in just a few minutes. And uh, you know, we do have Rufus Tolbert here to talk about how this is used in practical terms. But let's do some definitions here. Uh, when you say that there are people who don't understand restorative justice very well, let's define it. What is restorative justice? Yeah, it's a face-to-face opportunity for um, bringing victims of a crime or um, people who have been harmed. Um, and it doesn't have to be an official crime. It can be something in a school, 
for example, um, a, a situation, a, an, an acting out situation in a school in which people are harmed, people's trusts have been violated, um, have been stolen from, property has been damaged. Um, so people have been harmed, people have caused the harm, and people in the community who are also affected by sort of secondary victims in the the, the, the justice system might refer um, them as. So it's it's a process that includes all three of those components. And our justice system has historically been very offender-focused. It's been very perpetrator. Right, yeah. yeah. And I use the word punishment, and you said it has been very focused on, uh, you know, the person who has caused the harm for the most part. So victim, I'm sure that got a lot of, gets a lot of people's attention when they hear that this is in, in place to help the victim as well. Oh, yeah. And it's it's and that's a missing component. I've heard judges and other people say, yes, we do restorative justice, the uh, special uh, special courts like drug courts and so forth and veterans courts um, see themselves and, and uh, juvenile justice systems in other counties see themselves as doing restorative justice. But most often the missing component is inclusion of the victim in a process or victims in a process. And usually, and some of those victims are quite honestly the parents of youth who are acting out or family members um, who are affected secondarily um, or family of the, let's say there's a fight that happens, the family or parents of the people uh, that were assaulted. Um, so that's all part of the concept of restorative justice, including a bigger picture in and understanding how harm has a ripple effect. It's not just... A, it's not just an offender. It's not just one other person who gets to write a statement, uh, what we call victim impact statement in the system. Um, but but there's a ripple effect that needs to be brought into a process of accountability, but also a, pos- a process potentially of healing. Rufus Tolbert, before you know, I can tell you wanted to say something, but let me ask this question. Uh, Chris just mentioned that this has been the law of the land since 1995. Yes. You've seen it before 1995 and after 1995. What was the difference? Well, <clears throat> the truth is, um, when he mentioned the fact that it was so offender-focused, um, essentially, as human beings, we really do think about retribution first. Somebody did something wrong to me, I want payback. And when we look at it being a harm caused by juveniles, then most of our parenting styles up to a certain point in in history has always been punishment. Take away that bad behavior by punishment or, you know, we've gotten a lot more savvy, a lot more um, wise and understand that maybe loss of privileges and things like that come along, but it's still focused on the offender. In the system itself, um, and you look at crime and punishment around the world, historically, somebody commits a crime, somebody has to pay, And the change in the system occurred in 95, and it kind of progressed up to where we are today, where it isn't just about punishment. It really is about restoring the harm that's caused. And um, one of the things that's interesting about dealing with victims is there was never actually any real consideration for victims in the entire justice system, period, nationwide, until the the 90s. And then they had something called the Victims' Bill of Rights that came along, and you had different offices that were created around the country. And in the juvenile justice system, what happened is uh, we began to say, okay, not only are you going to pay back restitution if you broke something or stole something, but you'll also provide a letter of apology. You also work through competency development um, uh, activities that will help you to become more morally uh, balance so that you can understand you harm not just the person you stole from or the person you got into a fight with, but the entire community was affected. And in the progression uh, of activities throughout the system over the years, we've gotten a lot better with that to the point where we believe that now we address those victims' issues right off the bat. When judges make decisions on what a kid will suppo- will, will have to do in terms of probation or receive services, the victim's not lost in that process anymore. So just so I'm clear here, um, we're talking a lot about juveniles, but does, does this apply, does restorative justice apply to adults as well? Yes, it does. Um, and it, it, it's a whole societal uh, shift in terms of philosophy. 
uh, you can lock people away, but statistics and research will show that um, incarceration is only so effective. It does have its merit, but in terms of changing people's mindsets, behaviors, and then communities in general, having people gone but not changed doesn't really make a difference. So in the adult system, this has become a greater part of it, and we're using what are called evidence-based practices these days, where it isn't just about um, giving them um, jobs after they're, they're done, but to have them understand um, psychologically, socially, emotionally, spiritually, what type of things need to be instilled in an individual to help them realize, I want to be different. And so evidence-based practices have helped at, at the adult level as well as at the juvenile level. But and let me also say that when you get someone who is younger, is it easier? And maybe that's not a good way to describe it, but uh, I mean, it's probably better that you, there's uh, to change a young person's life because obviously they're going to be living a lot longer, be a, a part of this world a lot longer. So I guess what I'm getting at is that when they're young like this and still impressionable, that this is one of the reasons that juvenile justice overall is different than the adult system, right? Yes. Um, it, there is the opportunity to instill change. And um, if, I, if I could jump in here, Rufus, too, I, I agree that restorative justice works in, the, in, a, in an adult context. Unfortunately, juvenile justice system and adult justice system in Pennsylvania and most states is so different. Um, it's just organized differently, and it's much more adversarial. It's it's a longer, more drawn-out process in the adult courts. Um, and it, it, there's more um, politics. There's more uh, a tendency to lawyer, you know, to bring lawyers to, to try to get out of, of, of the situation rather than come forward. I mean, restorative justice works when there's an admission of guilt. Uh, first off, uh, and there's much more incentive to to admit guilt in the juvenile system, understanding that you know a lot of things can be put into place that aren't um, going to jail for ten years, let's say, or or even you know even going to jail at all. Um, that there are a lot of alternatives. Where in the adult system, it, there's it's a blunt instrument, and um, restorative justice has not found a good place in the adult system that I've seen a, until. People are incarcerated. There's a state, uh, statewide um, victim offender dialogue program. I think you've had, yeah, Jennifer uh, Storm, who's the state's victim advocate. Right. Yeah. So that that's the the only place we've found institutionally a home for restorative justice on a consistent basis. We are offering it on the adult, um, in the adult system, and and has been successful. But quite honestly, uh, one of the reasons it's successful, more successful in the juvenile system, apart from the system being friendly and and a partnership between. Lancaster County Juvenile Probation and, and ADVOS, for example, being successful is that people who are impacted by ju a juvenile crime are more likely to say, yes, I will. I want to be part of a dialogue, I'll give partly, this kid a chance. partly because they want, they want to make a difference for that kid, too. They want to be able to teach a lesson. That's actually one of the reasons why, um, why victims want to participate about half the time, it seems, that they, they want to they want to teach the lesson. They want to tell their side of the story because they think it'll make a difference for the kid, whereas for an adult, uh, it's not as self-evident um, that they think it will make a difference. Um, we were just talking about statistic. I believe it's 26, 27 years old is when the uh, the youth mind sort of start, really crystallizes and becomes an adult. Well, we cut it off at 18. So it's actually a lot of growing potential well into our 20s um, that you can learn from a process like this. And I would say people are learning from it when we see people doing it in prison much later. They're transformed by often by the experience. But I'd, I'd be curious to hear from Molly because of her um, motivation well, I'm going to, to bring participate Molly in, the conversation. I've got to take a little yeah. bit of a break sure. here, but I want to talk more about the process in just a moment. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Smart Talk is supported by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health Spine Institute, offering a complete range of services to diagnose and treat your spine condition. More information is available at pinnaclehealth.org/spine. 
Welcome back to Smart Talk. We're talking about restorative justice. We're going to be talking about dialogue overall and communication, having conversation. That's coming up uh, during the rest of the program. Our guest today, Chris Fitz, Executive Director, Community Engagement of Advos Mediation and Restorative Justice Practices. Rufus Tolbert's a probation officer with Lancaster County Juvenile Probation. And Molly Sollenberger, who experienced restorative justice firsthand. We're going to hear Molly's story in just a few minutes. If you have a story, if you have a question, you have a comment. Give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at org. You can leave a question or a comment on WITF's Facebook page. On Twitter, we are at SmartTalkWITF. Again, that phone number, 1-800-729-7532. do want to talk about the process, but Molly Sollenberger, you may provide a, a good example of how the process works. Tell me your story. You're from Ephrata, by the way. I am from from Ephrata. Um, my husband and I own a warehouse uh, that's a old Glengarry brick building that we got about 20 years ago. It was derelict and abandoned, and over the years we've invested a lot of time and effort, little by little, in bringing and it up. And money, I imagine, too. And money, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, and in the um, winter of 2016 we were out of town and we get a phone call from someone who tells us that there was some really bad graphic graffiti uh, placed on the back of our building and we come to find out that this was part of a larger offense of um, two girls that were 12 years old at the time who had um, gone down the rail trail that comes behind our building and runs um a pretty good distance at this point and, and it's a nice addition to the community everybody was looking forward to it and over the course of an of a late morning evening type of a situation they took spray paint and damaged the trail signs various buildings um and what was so bad at this point we had experienced graffiti in the past but it it did not rise to the level of um what we had this time. You it, mean, meaning that there was more or just what was written? It, what was written. Okay. It was very sexually graphic. Okay. There were pictures. Um, there were some very um, racially offensive okay. statements placed on the building and um, and elsewhere along the trail. Yeah, just for, to interrupt for just a moment, this did get attention. One of the reasons is that this is where the Dick Winter statue, Dick Winters, the native of Ephrata, World War II hero, Band of Brothers fame, statue went up on the rail trail just before that, actually, just a few months, right? Yes. And that was part of what was the damage. Was, was vandalized and where there was graffiti. Sorry to interrupt. I just want to kind of give people a sense of context of, 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 of where this sure. was. So at that point... Um we had um, someone cover right away the offensive um, pictures. And this gentleman, um, Sean Hogarth, he has kind of self-appointed himself as a guardian of the trail. He's not employed by the borough or um, anyone, but he so values that activity and and that um, location that he regularly patrols it. If he sees graffiti, he will asked the owner if he can cover it. So he approached us about putting a really nice mural on the back of our building. He would donate his time, and we would provide the materials. So that that happened last spring, and we thank him tremendously because it's it's a great addition to the trail. Um, There's been no graffiti since the mural's gone up, Mm -hmm. so we're making progress. Um, At any rate... um, in the spring of this year, we were contacted by a representative of Advos to see if we wanted to um, engage in a restorative justice situation with um, the girls that had been ultimately found and charged with this offense. So I agreed on behalf of our company to in- engage in that, um, and I was glad to do it. it. It really made me feel good that I was going to be able to talk to the people um, because what struck me is that they were so young. Yeah, that that is that is striking. Yeah, I was thinking back to when I was twelve and I was still playing with dolls, <laughs> and I didn't even know about the subject matter that they were portraying on the trail. So it really struck me um, that maybe we could get back to a a simpler time and that they could learn some you know some things. And I just wanted to hear the story as to why. 
you know, what led up to a 12-year-old engaging in that kind of behavior. What did they tell you? Well, they said that that, um, neither one of them were under much supervision parentally. I think that it was the old, um, I'm sleeping at so-and-so's house, and you, you tell the same story, and, you know, if our parents ask, um, you know, we're pulling a fast one. Um, they did find alcohol in the, the one house that was available to them, so there was alcohol involved, um, and they took spray paint uh, from from the home and just impulsively, you know, decided to do what they did. Um what impressed me the most was that the one the girl that we met with and there was a borough representative there too because the borough had to clean up a large portion of the trail and they were also harmed and another gentleman who they hit his garage um she was very uh remorseful and she had actually at the time uh her father took her with him she had been living with her mother so her total environment had changed. They moved to a more rural part of the county. He imposed a lot more restrictions, and quite frankly, she didn't have anywhere to go like she did when she was in the borough. She could freely hook up with kids that were much older, and that was the other thing they were doing. They were part of a group of much older adolescents, so they were learning some bad behaviors from that group. Um, and, and her grades had gone from D's and F's to A's and B's. So she was really making an effort to turn her life around and make, and her parent, her father and stepmother were really making an effort to help her turn things around, and, and it was working. So we felt very good, all of the victims in that meeting, that there was some real progress being made and changed in her life and that she was heading in a better direction. What about the other one? The other one, um, it was very instructive. We... There were four meetings scheduled with the other girl and her parents. And every time at the last minute, it was canceled by a call from one of the parents who, in my opinion, made an excuse as to why they couldn't come. So it was very, at least to me, very clear the influence of the parents on the adolescent and being responsible for their behavior. Um... And so we never met with her. She was sent back into the juvenile system, um, and I don't know what happened from there. So, Chris, let me ask you, and I want to go back to Molly in a moment uh, to, to finish up the story, but um, in a case like that, it didn't work because the the second young girl yeah. didn't, um, here, let me turn that up a little bit, uh, didn't want to participate or her parents didn't want to participate. This sounds like they need to buy into this if, if it's going to if it's going to work. Um, does that happen often? I mean, is this when you bring this to uh, Rufus, bring this to uh, a perpetrator, someone who is offended and say, OK, here's something we can do. And, you know, this may help you in the long run. They have to buy in. Yeah, so restorative justice, unlike the court system, and this is why it, it is not a substitute for the court system, obviously, um, it's a voluntary process. It only works when the parties want to be there. We can't drag in uh, you know, kids who have done something wrong and sort of force them to apologize. That's, that just harms everybody. Again, you know, it it doesn't do them any good um, to uh, force apologies, and it doesn't do the people that have been harmed uh, to to hear that. In this kind, in this case, they were scheduled to come because they they said yes. Um, but as you can see, you know, there has to be some real willingness to show up, and there has to be some function in the family, right? The the parents have to have bought in and and be functional. And I think sometimes that some of the issues that we see of kids acting out is partly because the parents don't have a fully functioning family. You, you've just anticipated one of the questions we have from uh, a listener who said, you know, what is the role of family dysfunction uh, for kids that young? And Rufus, maybe you can touch on this as well. Maybe not just that young, but any age that that family dysfunction probably has a big role. It, it does. And um, one of the things I'll, I'll add real quickly in our system in Lancaster, <clears throat> except in cases where it's totally inappropriate, we will 
uh, refer kids to Advos's um, process, the, the reconciliation process, and we have um, for 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 years. And the idea is, of course, to restore the victim, um, to give the, the our juveniles a chance to meet people face to face, say I'm sorry, maybe talk about what they were going through. In many cases, um, the decisions, the actions are just based on environment. Kids will make, they'll make bad decisions because they're with their friends or they will act out in anger because that's how they were raised and that's you know fairly acceptable from where they come from. But in some cases, um, we find that just showing them a different way to give them a different opportunity to meet with the victim, to say, wow, I really didn't think about you in this particular case, that that makes a big difference. Um, and, you know, Molly's telling her story, but one of the great things that I've seen is the relationships that develop between victims and offenders over the years. This this conferencing has been phenomenal, and it's actually one of the evidence-based uh, practices that we hold on to as a statewide, um, you know, just, just one of the lights that we hold up to say that this will make a change in, in the system and in, in the lives of juveniles. And in one case, I actually saw a young man who barely spoke um, his, his English. He had a, he had a language challenge, um, and he had this major machismo thing going on. And there's no way I could have anticipated that he would go through the reconciliation process and do a great job. But in the end, not only did he go through and let the victim know that he really didn't mean anything personally in his his actions, but it was such a great process that that young man was offered a job by the victim later on. Mm. So so the environments make a big difference, but then just giving them the opportunity for something different is just huge. Something you just said, though, that uh, he let the victim know that it wasn't personal. Isn't it always personal? I mean, if you're the victim, it's personal. Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. Well... We'll let Molly speak to that yeah. more, more specifically. I mean, but you, you felt yeah. personally victimized, right? That was my first reaction. It was our normal American reaction of anger um, because we had worked so hard to you know, bring this building to where it had been. But right on the heels of that, um, I, I felt really bad for these girls. I was really worried about them. Um, and part of that, I think, comes from the fact that we had a daughter at 19 who was killed in a car accident. So we won't, she won't ever get to finish her life. And so when I see young people engaging in behaviors that literally threaten their lives in some cases, I mean, these girls could easily progress to other behaviors, drug use, et cetera, that, that could ultimately kill them. And so it was really important to me to be able to speak with them um, and share with them that there's always a second chance. There's there's always a chance to have a do-over, and there's always a chance at a better life. I think in our society, a lot of times, we're very intolerant of people who mess up. You know, you don't get a second chance, or we're judgmental. But we've all messed up, and we're all going to continue to mess up the rest of our lives. The, the important thing is to learn from that. So that was part of my motivation was to be able to speak with them and say, hey, you know, you have a second chance here to move forward with your life in a positive way. Tell me about that. The first conversations, though, with uh, with this 12-year-old. Uh, I mean, I imagine from her point of view, she probably was scared and was uh, pr probably anxious. What about you? And, and how did the conversation progress? It, it was a really good conversation. I think all of us that all the victims that were in the room at the time, um, we first wanted to know how it happened and, of course, why maybe that had happened. And she was very forthcoming with the information. I, I was surprised. I thought that maybe she would try to excuse her behavior or cover her behavior. Blame someone else. But it was yeah. very clear because her father engaged in the conversation also, and it was very clear that, that he had spoken with her at length about the ramifications of her behavior and being responsible. But we all praised her for being courageous and brave to come in in the first place because by the time we spoke with her, she had just turned 14. And I don't know if at 14 I would have had the courage to face three adults across the table, you know, about something that I had done that had harmed them. So to her credit, she was a very brave individual, but of course, very obviously supported by an adult um, to come in the room. And, and then 
the middle of the conversation kind of gravitated eventually to each and every one of us telling her that we forgave her. And we actually, as part of that, each and every one was given the opportunity to make this decision, but we each forgave her our portion of the restitution um, and told her that it was more valuable to us than the money that, that they could pay us to see her move her life in a positive direction. Well, you're kind of compassionate because there were a lot of people that restitution would mean a lot. And for some people, they would have to have restitution, whether they get the, the full amount or not. But, but that uh, was the beauty of the process. We, we each of us were given that choice. The adverse um, person read each of our um, statements where we listed our restitution amounts one by one, and each person, each victim was given the opportunity to request that and have that stay on the table or to, you know, express some other desire. And we each, in that particular case, we each forgave it because she had already made so much progress and, and that was more important to us. Chris, walk me through the process. What, uh, you know, I think Molly has described it from her point of view, but is there a process and how does it work? Yes. Um, and it is very, it's very important that there's a structure to the process. It's not just bringing people together with a lot of good intention. Um, that And that structure is pretty simple. It's actually kind of stunning how simple it is. Uh, we have volunteers who actually carry out the actual facilitation, the mediation uh, process. Um, and so there is some fairly extensive training that they go through. But it's essentially a meeting first with one and then the, then the other party individually, um, as many people that were involved that or that want to be part of the, the the conference or that may just be interested in understanding what it is and what what they can get out of it. So we'll meet with a young person or the the, the person who caused harm, um, hear their story, listen for remorse, listen for authenticity, and um, you know not making excuses that they're taking some responsibility. Um, and and then then uh, speak individually then with the people or person that was harmed, and sort of understand and often communicate. You know, so this is some of what you can get out. What are you interested in knowing? And um, so we don't communicate back and forth between those meetings. It's not a shuttle diplomacy. <laughs> um, we but we um, in having the facilitator be in the middle of that. Under no, is this an appropriate case to go forward? to a conference, what we call a conference, um, or is it probably better to um, settle it uh, apart, you know, with, with people apart if one person or the other isn't ready to go forward? What we often find is that we encourage uh, people who have been harmed to bring their frustration, their anger, to be able to express that in a conference. Oftentimes, they... they um, they feel a lot of frustration and anger, and they express that in the first meeting. And um, when the actual meeting, the face-to-face conference happens, they often back off because they see, oh, my gosh, it's just a 14-year-old. Like, mm-hmm. I, I, can't, I can't, like, show how mad I was that, you know, I had to go through insurance for a week or deal with the broken window for, and, you know, the heating loss and all that for, for some time. Whatever the, the the struggle that they had to deal with or trauma, um, they often then are apologetic about the the anger, the frustration right from the beginning. Our facilitators often have to drag out the the the, the feelings that they had so that the the person who caused harm understands the full implication of what they did. You say that if they're showing resort, uh, remorse and that uh, you you think that it will work. Um, what if they don't? What if they don't show remorse? I mean, are there cases where you say, okay, this is just not a good candidate? Absolutely. Yeah. And, and that's a, a call that the facilitator is trained to make. And we have a case a case manager, a project, a program coordinator who also uh, supports them in um, vetting some of those cases that are on the, on the border. Um, and you know, some people ask, is it is there a safety concern? Are, are there issues with um, 
you know, uh, unsafe, the dialogue kind of erupts into uh, something else, right? And we've actually, in, in 22 years, when we've had 10,000, more than 10,000 people be offered our services and have offered, have done dialogue with more than 1,000 people. And we've never had a, a, a dialogue session turn into, um, I mean, sometimes people raise their voices, um, but we've never had it turn into a fight or any any unsafe situation. Yeah, I've you, been. I'm sorry. Good. No. Go ahead. Uh, I've been most impressed with that that uh, that reality with the victim offender conferencing. Um, when I have to tell families this will be a service that we will recommend for you to to go through. Uh, many times there's that major anxiety. I have to face this person that I've done something wrong to. And sometimes the kid is okay. The kid thinks, you know, I can get by anybody as long as I can get off probation. <laughs> but the parent... Yeah, well, uh, I mean, are they looking to con people there? No, no, no. Okay. But, but right. sometimes okay. they're, they're mentally prepared okay. to just All go right. through whatever. Um, a lot of times we find that the anxiety is more about more from the parents. You know, my kid will have to sit down and face this other parent, and they, I think, believe that that adult will react the way that they would react if they were the victim. So sometimes the parents are saying, wait, no, you know, my kid's not going to sit down with this person, especially if there's already some history there. But I've been extremely impressed, and um, I, I will continue to make referrals to that service because the fact that their facilitators, Advos's facilitators, have just been... Um, these I, I call them miracle workers at at creating these really loving situations where when it's done, if nothing happens except that they get to clear the air. And I, I always tell kids, the thing you want to be able to do is to walk into the supermarket, look that person in the eye, and say hello, and then just keep going. If the restitution amount remains the same, if no other things develop out of that, we want peace to arise out of the situation in, the, in a way that, you know, nobody feels prickly about passing each other in, in an aisle in the supermarket. That's the way I explain it. And his uh, facilitators or their facilitators have always done a fantastic job with that. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Welcome back to Smart Talk. We're talking about restorative justice today. We're going to be talking a little bit more about conversation, dialogue, communicating overall when we're talking about the justice system. Our guest today, Chris Fitz, Executive Director, Community Engagement of Advos Mediation and Restorative Justice Practices. Rufus Tolbert, a probation officer with Lancaster County Juvenile Probation. And Molly Sollenberger, who just told a wonderful story wasn't wonderful when it started, but maybe as it ended, but uh, uh, when I say wonderful, a good example of how a restorative justice can work, at least with one of the offenders. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You can leave a question or a comment on WITF's Facebook page. On Twitter, we are at smarttalkwitf. We have an email here from Jeffrey. says, the difference for me between uh, restorative justice and the criminal justice system is that it helps bring healing rather than just penalize someone. For example, in the case of sexual assault, the thing that matters most to many victims is having a chance to face the rapist and hear them admit they committed the crime. All the trials and jail time does nothing to repair the damage caused by all the cycle of lying and denying that happens in the legal system. Chris, what do you think of that? Well, you just threw out one of the, uh, the toughest nuts uh, to crack in the restorative justice field, which is uh, severe violence and, and sexual violence, um, especially in cases of severe violence when people were children, for example. Um, and there is there is some work nas- nationally done with other programs um, with sexual assault and, and uh, face-to-face conferencing. That is something that we have an from time to time explore when a relevant case comes up, when there's um, specifically from somebody who was harmed requesting it. Uh, but it's there are many, there are many um, challenges and complications with uh, two people coming into a room where there's a history of uh, violence and severe power imbalance. Let me, let me ask about that because this is actually, this email kind of um, was something I was thinking about too. I have to imagine that there are certain crimes that this cannot be used for. Um, I mean, when there's a, a Molly situation, thankfully, 
There was no person who was physically harmed. There was no physical violence. There was a structure. There was a trail. There was a statue. But no one was physically harmed. There are cases where crime victims are left uh, permanently damaged physically and mentally. There has to be a certain criteria, I would imagine, for where this can be used, the, the type of crimes. Honestly, the criteria, I think, is more about the timing of it being used and the readiness for people who have been harmed. People um, are ready for a process like this, if they ever are ready, at very different times. And what we see overall is the more serious the crime, the longer it takes till somebody is ready for a dialogue, uh, honestly. we've, uh, For example, we got a call about a domestic violence situation the day after it happened, and we knew we're probably not going to do anything with this because there's lots of other things that need to happen in that relationship and both for both people involved uh, before a face-to-face dialogue is going to happen and, and do what it really, what it potentially could do, which is leading toward healing. So um, the more severe the situation, the more severe the violence and trauma, more likely those cases are going to happen six months, a year, two, three years later. And the state's victim offender dialogue program is oriented toward that kind of a timeline, whereas a county-based program or locally community-based program, our our best cases are cases maybe not so severe. Sometimes they are. I mean, in terms of the trauma experience, we had a case where um, a, a, a young girl saw a burglar in her house and thought it was was her dad and called out to him. And and there was a moment where anything could have happened there. And th- so we're talking about you know that leaves some that leaves a mark that leaves some trauma. Um, those kind of cases still can be really appropriate if there's readiness um, by the people harmed, and that readiness could happen earlier. Now, one, one of the challenges in the adult system, uh, most cases won't come up for a year or so, maybe nine months at the very earliest. In the juvenile system, they, it moves quicker, so people who have been harmed want to move on after a year. So those ca- uh, restorative justice process makes most sense a month, two, three, four months afterwards, rather than a year, two, three years later. So the more severe the case, generally, the more time is needed till people are ready to, you know, collect themselves and and be able to face the person who harmed them. Rufus, do you have uh, clients? I don't know whether that's the correct terminology or not. Client's a great term. Okay, we'll use that. Uh, Do you have clients that uh, you look at and say, "Uh uh-uh? They're just not that. They're just not a good candidate. Yes, for this. Uh, uh, and and Chris touched on a part of it. Um, our our system is a lot more time bound, um, whereas the adult system they can stretch things out for years and years. We generally try to get a juvenile um, offender into court uh, on probation and done with supervision in six months or less. And if we have to go beyond that, then we'll work things out in terms of making petitions to the court and things like that. But in some cases, the situation is its just not an appropriate offense. Um, those more severe, severe interpersonal, violent, sexual situations, right off the bat, we, we've eliminated the possibility of even making referrals for those. And then even in the cases where it's a, a, a lesser, a more minor crime, we have to judge the entire situation. So say if it's just um, uh, vandalism, as in your case, Molly, but it was a personal situation where maybe Molly's business refused to let somebody come in after they had disrupted the business once or twice, and then it was a, you know, a personal um, defacing you know, and, and things like that of the property, it may not be appropriate if we really look at it and we say this is you know this is so personal it'll take so much more work to get through that situation but the philosophy itself is still there and we definitely leave those things open so in some cases where we would not normally um, make a referral when a kid is initially on probation or initially going through court, we will leave it open for advos to be able to contact them or for the victim to maybe ask for that service later on because it's a free service in the community. So it isn't necessarily driven by the court. I'm curious. 
what do prosecutors, what do police officers, what do they think of this? Because let's face it, there are still many people, and I'm not saying all prosecutors are this way or all lawyers or all uh, police officers, that will say, you know what, they committed the crime, they should do the time, <laughs> they should pay the price. What do you think, uh, wh I mean, wh how do they think about this? Well, th this is a part of the, uh, the change in the system over the last 20 years or so where we have, uh, not only do we have that consideration after probation, but we also have um, diversionary programs that kids will be allowed to, um, to, to go through that will actually keep them from getting a record in the first place. So we have things called the Youth Aid Panel where um, they'll have to perform some tasks um, that are, it's overseen by a panel of community members, and if the kid does what is asked, um, maybe... Um, do some good things in schools, some community service projects, they will never actually get a charge and have a record. Um, if they get the charge and the record, then we can still take them through informal processes. We can take them through um, consent decree processes where once it's all done, those uh, the charges and the record, are, they're all wiped clean. In many cases, the victim, definitely the victim, the prosecutor, they have the first... Um, line of questioning. So we never try to give a kid an easy out without taking the victim's um, uh, opinion into consideration. And so when we talked about the victim's Bill of Rights earlier, that's one of the things. So we're not letting the kid off because maybe he was normally a good kid and he never did this kind of thing before. If the victim feels like there's some major accountability that they would like to see affected, then the victim, that the juvenile will have to go through it. So we have a lot of input from the victim, from the prosecutor, and in some, and, and the police as well. And in some cases, they will all be opposed to what they consider, you know, uh, an easy out. I'll, I'll put it that way. But overall, we've gotten far along, far enough along in this process that everybody knows we would not ask for anything like a reconciliation process unless in our professional opinions and in the human aspect of rebuilding community and restoring the victims, if it was all possible in the first place. Chris? And we have great examples of this happening all the time. We'll contact a victim of a crime who um, is begrudging um, uh, just a case that I myself worked with, young man, uh, two very expensive wheels stolen from his front yard uh, while he was not there. And um, he went to the hearing and he was like, what, these kids don't have to do time in juvenile detention? You know, his, he thought that that's what happens when you break the law if you're a juvenile. So um, he, was, he was mad. Um, but he begrudgingly said yes to, you know, our first meeting. And um, so I met with him face-to-face. -face. I met with both of the, the boys face-to-face. -face. Um, and when we got to the conference, he, he agreed to go through because he wanted to teach them a lesson, essentially. He wanted to, um, him, he wanted to communicate how put off he was and, and actually quite actually tr almost traumatized and paranoid because it was the second kind of incident that he had in his neighborhood. He had installed cameras, et cetera. Um, so when they got to the face-to-face -face meeting um, and they, they both talked here, it turns out that he's a mechanic professionally and the two boys were looking to become auto mechanics when they graduated from high school. So he became very interested in helping them and giving them ideas and tips about how to stay in school how to get to to be a mechanic so they could get a real job so they could um, buy their own car and not need to you know <laughs> so, yeah, so at the end I, at the end I asked him are you sure you don't want to ask for anything else community service some kind of apology some something more formal and he said no I I feel good that they've heard what I said and that they're not going to do it again mm. and and you know, the, we could have never orchestrated it. The court could have never, could have never orchestrated that kind of exchange happening. Um, it only happens when we we let them do it in 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 this kind of a structured, safe process. We only have a couple minutes left, and I promised that we would talk about uh, a broader issue. And Chris, you mentioned that uh, Advos is a combination of a couple organizations coming together, and one of them was devoted to peacekeeping. You know, one of the things that uh, 
we know that in our society today that conflict is often resolved with loud voices, sometimes confrontation, sometimes violence. Um, your organization is totally opposite of that. How do you see how our our society improving, our disagreements maybe coming to some kind of compromise or at least some kind of understanding if we are able to talk? Well, you, you've touched on a hard one. I mean, I think in the public space. And we got about two minutes for yeah, <laughs> for right, right. Well, I mean, it came up on the in the budget impasse a few years ago, and you know, you see it in in various impasses. There, there's a lot of positioning um, of of sort of in in the political and the in the media uh, of of people's ideas, and um, there there are many kind of techniques and insights that the mediation field has to offer even even politicians even you know it's a even um, I mean they're skilled negotiators but they get stuck and um, if they don't want to be stuck I think there are a lot of there are a lot of um, techniques and insights that the mediation field has to offer community larger um, political and community dialogue you actually, you, you know, part of Advos's name is uh, mediation and restorative justice practices. Uh, you work with in divorces, uh, in cases where mediation is involved, right? Yes, yeah. Um, so the mediation part of our of our work um, is very much about civil situation, neighbor neighbor disputes, um, landlord tenant, uh, families um, struggling to stay together. Um, or negotiating separation, and and so how to do it while maintaining and perhaps healing relationships. Sometimes the healing doesn't happen, but to not make it worse by making it more adversarial and more um, oftentimes going through the court will will just increase the cost and the cost emotionally as well as financially. How quickly could you get to Washington? <laughs> I joke. <laughs> to be continued. Right. Chris Fitz is uh, Executive Director of Community Engagement of Advos Mediation and Restorative Justice Practices. Rufus Tolbert, a probation officer with uh, Lancaster County Juvenile Justice. Molly Somberger told her story. Thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you, You're Scott. You're very welcome. Thank you. Coming up on uh, tomorrow's program, we'll be talking about a discovery about underground water. It's kind of surprised some people. And a Broadway superstar that is coming to the area this weekend that's coming up on tomorrow's program. Smart Talk is produced by WITF as part of our mission to deliver relevant, high-quality programming. Support for this program comes from Capital Blue Cross, which shares WITF's commitment to being a valuable and trusted resource for the communities we serve. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health, committed to reducing hospital-acquired infections and readmission rates. More information on Pinnacle Health's achievements in patient safety can be found at pinnaclehealth.org quality.